0: Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty LuPone.
1: This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC.
0: My name is Frank Wildhorn and you're listening to Eleven, the, the official theater podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Eleven, the official theatre podcast that brings the biggest stars and creatives together in one place to discuss life in the arts. He's the Tony, Grammy and Emmy Award-nominated celebrated composer of both musical theatre and popular songs that's an international legend among us all. He's the genius writer behind the number one international hit Where Do Broken Hearts Go? for the greatest voice of all time. Miss Whitney Houston. Throughout his career, he's written songs that have been recorded and performed by artists such as Hootie and The Blowfish, The Moody Blues, Johnny Mathis, Patti LaBelle, Trisha Yearwood, Colm Wilkinson, Anthony Warlow, Michael Ball, Beverly Knight, Kenny Rogers, Sammy Davis Jr. and Natalie Cole, to name but a few. He's also a stage blockbuster machine as well, with 40 original shows under his belt, including Jekyll and Hyde, The Scarlet Pimpernel, The Civil War, Dracula, Wonderland, Bonnie and Clyde, Victor Victoria, Carmen, Rudolph, Death Note and The Man Who Laughs, to name but a few. He's also the first American to have a premiere with the Vienna Symphony Orchestra of his full-length symphony. And he's about to make his West End debut by joining with Jeremy Jordan for Bonnie and Clyde in concert at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. So here in an exclusive conversation, we dive into his remarkable career, including how he first stepped into the world of writing and the Broadway scene, working and writing with superstars including Miss Whitney Houston, among many others, overcoming the snobs to blend pop with theatre, the successes and struggles of Bonnie and Clyde on Broadway, and what we can all expect from Frank and Friends, which now comes to Cadogan Hall in London on Sunday, the 17th of April. It's the world-class legend of Frank Walton here now, on this, the next episode of Eleven, the official theatre podcast. To ensure the safety of all involved in this episode of Eleven, Frank and I connected for this conversation digitally, so please forgive any brief moments while we wait for the internet to catch up. Enjoy. Enjoy. Okay, here we go then. Legend status, fully, fully activated as. I welcome today to my next episode of 11. It's Music Genius, it's Frank Wildhorn. Hi, Frank, how are you? How are you doing? Good to see you. It's very good to see you. Thank you so much for being on 11 today. And I should say that this is probably the most glamorous location that 11 has ever come from. Sadly, not me, but I will let you do introduction because you just showed me a rather lovely view because you're in a rather nice part of the world.
0: Yes, aloha. We are, we're in Waikiki Beach. Uh, we have a place here in Oahu and Hawaii, where even though it's part of the United States, you can kind of live a life that you figure you're just in your own fantasy world. So you wake up in the morning and you look at the mountains and you look at the sky and you breathe the cleanest air in the world. And you just kind of say to yourself, welcome to Fantasy Island. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so so jealous it looks
1: amazing and you've got this biggest smile on your face And like imagine living there you pretty much have that all the time like life just feels good I can imagine
0: you know, that's me. Uh, I mean, I had the same smile in the Bronx and Harlem and Queens, LA. I mean, that's just, if you, you know, if you knew me, that's, that's just me.
1: That's a really good sort of characteristic and skill to have. I always try and sort of find myself being on the positive side and laughing and smiling and stuff. And actually, I will say it served me quite well since I sort of started doing this mantra. So I sort of fill you on that one. I think it's a good, it's a good way to approach the world.
0: I mean, come on. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm an idiot romantic anyway. You know, I'm a kind of cockeyed optimist and that's just the way I decide to live my life I'm talking to you because you know I'm a self-taught jazz player when I was a teenager trying to pick up girls in Hollywood Florida and now I'm talking to you because of what we're talking about and so I wake up every morning and my first thought is I am the luckiest guy in the world and then everything goes from that and that's that's why you got your smile and you know you can't let the little things get to you too much I mean, come on, we're we're making music here. That's what we're doing.
1: I love that we're making music. Well, let's make some fun today and let's have some fun because it's very, very exciting for somebody like myself that has a podcast like 11 to get the opportunity to talk to someone of your status, someone that is quite literally a living legend. And I'm probably going to embarrass myself by just firing loads of compliments your way during this conversation and to talk about some of the ridiculous projects that you've done because they're legendary iconic they are adored by literally millions and millions of people and I would love to talk about just a couple of those but before we do that this is sort of the strangest question I guess to start off with but I feel like I have an idea as to who you are because of your work But I wondered if you could explain to me in your own words how you would describe who Frank Wildhorn
0: is. I'm an ex-jock that writes tunes. (laughs) I I take my work seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. And I think the older you get, the less serious you should take yourself. The world is so screwed up. The world is so fragile. I, I made a choice. I don't know. I think I made the choice when I was a kid to be a joyful warrior. And so I think that's one of my mantras to remain a joyful warrior. And you go through the battles you go through, both in real life and in your career, but you kind of try to approach it with a joy, you know, and I hope that comes out in who I am and I hope it comes out in my work itself.
1: And I can imagine that bleeds into your work, as you say there, because it's a way in which you're positioning things and approaching things. And I can imagine because you're a creative giving voice to other people, you know, it sort of does come through your work.
0: I think there's a part of me in every character that I write for. There's a part of me in every pop song that I wrote for whoever I wrote it for, Uh, whether it's Whitney Houston or the Moody Blues, whether it's Johnny Mathis or Hootie and the Blowfish or Doctor John or Patti LaBelle or who. It doesn't matter, you know. It's it's this. It's all. First of all, what's more important is. My philosophy about music which for me it's all soul music and whether i'm writing for whitney houston or i'm writing for liza minnelli or julie andrews and victor victoria or I am writing as I just did as the first American to have a premiere with the Vienna Symphonic of my first full-length classical symphony, it's still soul music to me. I still approach it that way.
1: Where did that influence and love of soul music come from? Do you remember that first experience, Pat, for you that has had such a huge impact on your life? Where did that first happen?
0: My parents, who are not musicians, but lovers of music, had very, very eclectic tastes so growing up in uh, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, which is an amazing time for music, you know, whether it was the Beatles or young Stevie Wonder, whether it was Sinatra or Streisand, or it was Ray Charles and Aretha. Um, and then of course the, the classical music, uh, Rachmaninoff is my God. So I, I just think I was exposed to so much music early on and I continually am grateful to my folks for doing that for me. And one of the good things about that was it made me accessible to everything. You know, on Broadway, there are such snobs and there are these kind of keepers at the gate. And if it's not this, then it's not theater. You actually have people who go out and say, this is theater and this is not. And that's such bullshit because you, turn, you go into a theater, you sit with a thousand people, you turn off the lights, you all experience something together. Who the hell cares what kind of music it is? And so that's kind of been, uh, you know, I think something that started when I was a kid, though I didn't know it, I wasn't aware of it. You know, Duke Ellington always said, there's two kinds of music, you know, done well and not as well. There's the Mozart that we know and the Mozart that we don't know. You know yep. what I mean? There's TV Wonder for five, six albums in a row. And then everybody has good and everybody has less than, less than their best because if you're in this business long enough and you write, 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 you know, you, you, you try to keep the bar high. I, I find that uh, sometimes in New York, there are people who are so closed You know, and and I I, I rail against that and then I usually get in trouble for railing against that.
1: It's ironic that actually the the one thing that people say like, oh, you shouldn't do this is actually, particularly through your career, actually been one of your greatest successes is that it's an alternative to perhaps what everyone else is doing and i sort of feel like actually these days doing your own thing doing your own shit and getting on with it and actually being different actually makes you almost more successful than everyone else that's sort of doing the same thing it just doesn't really work as well like
0: yeah i mean you got to follow your passion and the one that belongs to you and not try to be somebody else or a version of somebody else and you know when Jekyll and Hyde came to Broadway in 1997, you know I was a blue-collar pop songwriter working for a publishing company, and if stars who sold records weren't recording my songs, my kids weren't going to eat, and I would be, you know, driving a truck or something like that. Mm. And and so I, you know, I always looked at the world as my stage. I never looked at five blocks in New York City as my stage. It was always the world because. Again, I come from pop music and my music publishers would always say, Frank, you know, 60 to 70 percent of your kid's income is going to come from your international stuff. If you're open to the world, it's going to make your life so much richer. I am married to uh, Takako Yokowao in Japan, who's a major and important, beautiful Japanese star. If I didn't have the attitude I had, I would have never met her in the first place. So my old publishers were right, is the is the point, you know. And so you got to stay open. And I'm thrilled that, that the theater world, you know, which has become the world, not just London or New York, uh, it's really become the world is, is becoming more and more of a place for younger audiences. God bless them to have the money to go, Um, but they do. And they're supporting, you know, shows and producers for, I mean, I have a lot of shows around the world and I am being asked these days by producers to write younger, more pop, more contemporary scores than I was 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago. And I think that's a good sign, you know what I mean? Because if we can introduce younger people to the theater and they have great experiences and they catch the magic of it, you look like you're 18 years old, so. (laughs) But uh, the point is, is that you you go to the theater and you have those experiences. And I'm, I'm not gonna name names, but there are some pretty successful people on Broadway writing right now that Jekyll and Hyde was their show. Was their first show and that was the first time they saw i mean i'm not billy joe and i'm not elton john and i'm not paul simon i was literally just a blue collar songwriter you know working in one genre and moving over to another genre and there's some pretty interesting famous people who say frank you know jekyll and hyde is what opened the door to me for me to be able to think about writing more popular and accessible music. And when we had hits with This Is The Moment and Someone Like You and A New Life and, and Johnny Mathis was recording Once Upon a Dream and Styx was recording Jekyll and Hyde songs and the Moody Blues was recording This Is The Moment for the World Cup soccer thing and things like that were happening. It just kind of made it a more accessible and opened the door, you know, and uh, I love to see kind of what's happening right now and of course, Hamilton has has changed the world, and that's great in its own way. That's another big, giant step. So it's evolving, and I'm optimistic about where it's evolving to, which is is great, because I wasn't so much maybe when I started in the early 90s, and People were saying, oh, no, you're the pop guy. You know, you can't do this. So,
1: as somebody that turns 30 in literally seven days being called 18 has literally made my week. So, thank you so much for that.
0: Ah, well, you have a baby face. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you are writing, you know, when you think back retrospectively now, and I always think, like, were you aware that what you were doing was different?
0: You're always a student of the game. I mean, I do a lot of master classes, and mantra number one is be a student. As long as you live, be a student. Take the things that you are passionate about. And you can't be a student of everything in your life, but you can pick certain things. You can say music, traveling, sex, food, whatever. You can be a student about that. And you won't grow old because there's always going to be something to learn so that's kind of a philosophy that kind of always has been in my life you know when you're in there and you're young and you're doing it and you're stupid and you're an idiot and you're romantic and you're just loving it and seeing you know wake up in the morning and there's a big mountain to climb and you want to climb that mountain you're not really thinking about what everybody else thinks and you can really give a fuck about what they have to say you just do what you do and you follow your passion and and then what happens is is if you have a little success and you quote get into the quote club then they tell you everything you're doing is wrong how dare you have those influences and come to the great white way i i, I got so much shit I, I was on 60 minutes you know in the year 2000 because i had the three shows running at the same time and that was a big deal and my father thought that was okay and and, uh, and 60 okay. minutes came over and part of the discussion was i, I said why did they call this the great white way i mean you know my favorite music is r&b latin and all this kind of stuff you and believe the criticism and the shit i took for that Because I I, I questioned that. I got a review when I did Civil War, which which I'll never forget, because it's a reviewer in New York who said, I don't understand why Mr. Wildtron gave the African American uh, ensemble all the best songs to sing. What? What? Where do you even come from to say something like that? So... You know, it is what it is. But like I said to you early on, and I have to be consistent with myself, I've always been a joyful warrior. And what the hell? I mean, my music is taking care of a million people. You know what I mean? And and as, as given my family, you know, more than I ever dreamed of growing up as a middle-class kid in Queens Village, New York. And I'm just so grateful for, and so grateful for the music itself. It's about the music itself. And whether it's theater or pop or movies, that's not what matters to me. I know this is a theater podcast and the theater fans are gonna be listening to us, listening to you, but I have to be honest. And, and, and you know, I'm a musician. I'm a musician that became a, a composer and I love it all. And I'm just, I'm so lucky to work in theater. I'm so lucky to have written Bonnie and Clyde with a master like Don Black, you know, uh, who has crossed every genre. And be part of the process of somebody like Jeremy Jordan and Laura Osnes growing up in the business, creating these, these, these roles which have kind of become iconic and, you know, they are what they are. They deserve, they deserve all the praise and, and, and fame and stuff that's coming to them because they were that good. So you put it all together and I, I, I don't need to be redundant, but I'm just pretty lucky guy.
1: Did you have a, a moment of, I think this is working, like, you know, the Eureka Lightbulb moment of actually, maybe perhaps even when you complete the circle, I remember interviewing Alan Menken and, and he said it was sort of after Little Shop of Horrors when he realized he could complete the circle of think it, write it, devise it, get good reviews and it be commercially successful, that he went, oh, I, th- I think I've sort of understand what's expected of me. Did you have that?
0: Well, first of all, I should write that down. Uh, (laughs) Alan is a neighbor of mine, upstate New York. And of course, Alan is a god and a genius. And and his art of combining what he does, and and, and it's so good, and it's also so accessible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have generations of people growing up on his thing is remarkable. And he's, he knows I feel this way because I tell him all the time. I mean, he's <laughs> a hero of mine. But uh, did I have an actual moment? Uh, y- y- you know what? I-, I have always been a creature of two worlds, the pop music world and the theater world at the same time. So when my theater success started, I was in the pop business. I was running a division of Atlantic Records. I was yeah. sitting on the other side of the desk. I, I do that as well. I-, I just, my head was down and I was working and working. But I'll tell you one thing that was pretty cool. Jekyll was in rehearsal. I forgot what studios we were in rehearsings. Big, huge rooms. I think it was in—I don't remember. And I got a call from the late great Pierre Cosette, who was the Scarlet Pimpernel producer. And while we were in rehearsals for Jekyll, Pierre called me one day and they—they they asked me to come out of rehearsal to take the phone call. And he said, Frank, we just got a theater Pimpernel's opening next year. And I sat there for a second and I thought, oh, shit, Jekyll's on, hasn't been on yet. And my second show has now got a theater. I mean, come on, you don't wake up in the morning thinking like that. So that that was really an actual specific moment where I went, oh, shit, this is interesting. This is cool, you know. And then another moment like that was I was in uh, Houston, Texas at the Alley Theater, which is a place that I birthed many of my shows, Jekyll, Civil War, Wonderland. And it was the morning after the opening of Civil War in Houston, which was like a concert version okay, where mm-hmm. that we had done. And after it was open, the next morning there was a breakfast. And in the breakfast, I was introduced to two guys. And one of the guys' name was Rocco Landesman. And he ran the Jajamson Theater chain at that time in New York. And the other guy was a little guy smoking a cigar at breakfast. And a wonderful character named Jerry Zacks, who of course, is a legendary director. They basically looked at me and they said, well, we're renovating the St. James Theater. And I know you thought we were going to tour this for a year, but why don't you go call your mother? This is what Rocco said. Call your mother and tell you you're going to have three shows on Broadway at the same time. So that was another one of those moments where the breakfast is over and you stop for a second and you go, What? You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, five minutes ago, I was in the studio, you know, writing a Hoodie and the Blowfish song. You know what I mean? And now I'm going to have three shows in New York. And it was like, Wow, okay, okay. And those are specifics, those are moments. (laughs) This probably would be
1: around about the same sort of time that you got the Grammy nom for the Jekyll and Hyde cast album, right? That was around. Late 1998
0: 97 was Jekyll, uh, the, the show. So I guess the Grammys of 98, which was uh, 10 years after I got a, a nomination for Whitney for Where Do Broken Hearts Go. I know I've been nominated for a lot of things. A lot of times I've never won anything. I don't know. You know, we'll see. One of these days. The fact is, 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 is yeah. The, and those were crazy years because, again, I was still running a new division of Atlantic Records called Atlantic Theater, which I started. I started that division. I went to Ahmed Erdogan and Doug Morris, the owner and CEO of Atlantic Records. And I said, you know, guys, you're part of Time Warner, the biggest communication company in the world. Shouldn't we have like the smallest division for theater music? And Ahmed said, I don't like theater music. I I honestly don't get it. I don't get it. But I love what you do, Frank. So I'll tell you what, we'll call it Atlantic Theater, but it's really Wild Productions and you can use it how you want. And that's why there's all of these Jekyll and Hyde concept recordings, Pimpernel concept recordings, Civil War concept recordings before we even, you know, did the show. And that's why there's, I don't know, 12 albums of Linda Etter, my ex-wife, who I still adore and make music with. Um, you know, we, we kind of had the run of the building many years and we made all of those great records and of course she's one of the great singers in the world.
1: Absolutely and I'm so glad you said that because one of my questions was just around the fact there are so many of these incarnations of albums that you sort of feel very privileged to be able to say well I can listen to so many different people including of course updated and more recent versions of them as well. You, as a listener as a fan of yours I do feel quite spoiled by sort of the availability of your music it's like actually I can listen to the likes of Deborah Cox most recently and go all the way back to the original cast It's and it's very different. And I guess my question around that was, is this intentional? Do you like to bring different versions and inflections of voices to the original work?
0: So first of all, I have, what is that thing? I get bored too fast in life. I, I have, I can't, you know, <laughs> I, 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 get, I have 11 commissions on my piano as we're speaking today. Oh my gosh, I d- I'm not making that up. I do. It's a fact. And I mean, it's crazy. But that's me. Now, I have a lot of my Broadway friends think I'm absolutely insane. And how can you do that? And, but I can't concentrate on one thing for five years and then be in the hands of other people to see what it's going to be. I got to do all kinds of things. So I kind of take that to the extreme. And I'm actually, you know, in another business. You know what I mean? First of all, I do a lot of concerts. So I have my Frank and Frank stuff, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, I, I've, I've always made records. I love to make records. And again, I was too stupid to know when you do a show, that's the show. I thought, all okay, right, it's just this version of the show for this moment in time. Yeah, I, the wonderful company that licensed my shows, I know I make them crazy because every few years I give them new versions and they say, well, what are we supposed to do with the old version? I said, I don't know. I mean, you know, I just keep writing, you know, and you get inspired and a new star comes in and a new star sings a certain way and you want to write for that star. So that leads to inspiration and to new stuff. Or sometimes I'm, I've got to use Jekyll as the example because there's been over 4,000 productions of Jekyll around the world is different cultures look at it a different way. Mm. And some cultures are very overtly sexual and they wanna push that button. And some are very prudish sexual. Some want the violence to be like in your face and realistic as it can. And some want it to be subtle and stylistic and stuff like that. And so, because I'm too stupid to realize there's just a version, and then you do that version. I mean, lame is is lame is, phantom is phantom, but it's going to be hard for you to find two Jekyll and Hydes that are alike. Hey, there's so many concept records, and of course, producers and directors fall in love with different things, and they then they come back to me. They get back to me through M T I, and they say, "Can we do so and so?" And I never say no. Because who am I to tell the German producer what he knows? He knows his audience. You know, He knows they grow up on Wagner and they can sit longer than an American audience. So sure, i put those three songs back in in different ways. The, the truth of the matter is 98% of the time, it's fun, it's a positive thing. It makes producers and directors feel more proprietary that it's their version. And I want to give them that. And it's fun for me just to then hear and the videos and see what it is people have done with it. You know, It keeps the art alive. It keeps the the brand alive. It keeps the, keeps the whole thing alive. And again, I I start with jazz. So it's all, it's all jazz to me anyway.
1: Forgive if this is a slightly silly question, but do you think, and was there prior to your sort of dipping your toe into the world of theatre? Was that relationship between, you know, mainstream pop, if I can give it a very sort of generic term and musical theater you know of, of course of the time there was music that was in the charts that was in theater but was there that direct relationship that, that you're very much at the heart of forming did that exist beforehand
0: you know well, exist much more in London where the charts are much more homogenized I remember there was a time in the charts where you had like you know a pop song number one and number two was like Pavarotti you know and then number three was a song from Evita or something like that you, you could do that in the history of the London charts, you can't do that in America. In America, it's so separate. All the charts are so separate and so specifically divine, defined. And of course, radio stations are so you know, spe- specific and defined as well. When I started in theater, I really was the infant terrible. And all the early press that I got was he's the pop guy. And that was from whoever was writing it and putting it in quotes, That was not a nice thing to say. He writes pop accessible, mostly black R&B music, and we don't want that. And there's no question that that's the truth. And anyone who who questions that is a fucking liar, as far as I'm concerned. Um, And so I got a lot of resistance. But I also got a lot of champions and people who said, go, go, go. Probably the number one was John Kander at the time. Uh, you know, who's 95 years old right now and probably working on a new show. But he was like, Frank, you do your thing, you, you do your style and just go with it and see where it takes you. Uh, Cy Coleman, you know, who's passed away, of course, was another one. But there was also a lot of older composers that I came on Broadway. The next thing they turned around, I had three shows on Broadway. The bullseye on my back could not have been bigger. So you can imagine, you know, what that was. And And, you know, of course, that also, you know, Float over to just the society of Broadway, which includes the, you know, the snobs and the critics and the people that, you know, like to be keepers of the gate. Like, who's this kid and what's he doing here? And what do you mean he has another show? What do you mean he has another show? And so I always had to kind of deal with that and the bullseye. But as I told 60 Minutes, the coolest thing was I had three softball teams I could play on in the in the Broadway League. And that's like, I really meant that. That's what was fun to me. You know, uh, uh, 21 years ago, I was a little younger man wearing younger clothes and uh, and being able to play on three softball teams in the Broadway League. That was like a lot of fun. You know, it, it just, it is what it is. It changes because the, like Mr. Jekyll says in the thing, the only thing constant is change. Mm-hmm. Great line, Mr. Brickus. And uh, and that is true. And That's why you are about to be 30 years old and you are you you know you have this big podcast and reach a gazillion people with it. And that's fantastic. So you're doing it.
1: Is it quite self-indulgent in the best possible way? And I always, always think this is sometimes where our best work comes from, where you get artists that you think theater, pop, whatever it might be, you think, I want to write for you. I want to be able to write a certain way. I want to hear this part of your voice and therefore I'm gonna do what I want. Do you have that? And I guess, is there a specific example you can think of?
0: I have hundreds of specific examples because because my biggest success of my catalog is when I knew who I was writing for. When I sat down and wrote Freedom's Child for Darius Rucker and Hootie and the Blowfish. I was writing for them and it was from the Civil War. And their manager said, are you kidding? You think this rock and roll band who's just sold 15 million records is going to do a song from a theatrical production? It'll ruin their career and their audience. And I begged and I begged and I said, just give me three minutes to play the demo for them. So finally, because I don't take no for an answer, I got the three minutes, sat around the table, played the demo and they said, hey, that sounds like something we would have written. And by the way, we're from Carolina. We're always revolting against the stars and bars. We have feelings about this. We're in and they didn't. And you know, so there you go. Uh, I have that story hundreds and hundreds of times because the truth of the matter, like I said, is my biggest success is not writing necessarily for character. It's writing for a voice that inspires me to write for them. If it so happens that that voice is playing a character like Linda Etter playing Lucy and Jekyll and Hyde is the number one example, of course, you know, Leslie and I wrote it for her. In fact, we wrote both parts for her in the beginning, you know, because when I mean, we did the first concept record with Cole Wilkinson in the orchestra at AIR Studios with George Martin, looking over our shoulder, which was another, what the hell am I doing here? It was uh, it was a thrill to, to do that. And then, you know, of course she had never been on stage before in her life and wasn't an actress. So we decided maybe we should have her play both parts of the show and just play Lucy, so. But that's kind of the stories, you know, those are the great stories.
1: What about when the artist isn't particularly keen? And I'm sure you can imagine which famous iconic singer I'm talking about, Miss Houston. What about when she's not totally on board? Is that then the best sort of, I don't want to say I told you so, but is it nice when it goes, you should have listened to me, I guess, how was that?
0: So when I wrote Where to Broken Hearts Go, I was with Chrysalis Publishing, which is an English company owned by Chris Wright and Terry Ellis, great publisher named Anne Monday. I hope she's well somewhere in the world. She was my publisher. And I had a lot of success with artists on the Aris, the label and Clive Davis's label. So he knew my work and he liked my work. And he said, I got this girl and I think you should hear her. And I think you should write for her. And Of course, I heard her. And I said, oh my God, that's the greatest voice I've ever heard. And, and so I wrote Where the Broken Hearts Go and I demoed the song. And you know, when, back in those days, you had a demo budget. So you know, they'd give you a few hundred dollars and you'd go make a recording and that's how you would go try to sell your songs. So I sent the demo to them, uh, to Clive and he gave it to Whitney and I got a thing saying, Frank, we love the song, but we'd love you to write a new bridge for the song. And I had run out of demo money. So all I could do is sit at the piano and scream three different bridges at them. And I have a letter somewhere. I think it's in my New York home somewhere. Uh, from Clive and Whitney that said, we love bridge number two. This is going to be a hit. And don't ever sing your own stuff again.
1: Oh. <laughs> and also, didn't it break like an all-time record that still exists today? Something to do with like her seventh consecutive number one, like a crazy stat.
0: It did. And uh, of course, I've got lots of stuff, memorabilia that that is <laughs> represents that. That's sheer luck. I'd be kidding if I didn't think. You have to have the right artist, at the right time, when she or he is the prior- priority of the record company, that's where they're spending the money. That's where the marketing is going. There's That machine, that star-making machine that we all do so well mm-hmm. is in full gear. And you have to have all of those different stars have to align at the right time. Also, there wasn't quite like a big ballad like that in the top 10 at the time. So there was a niche for it. I'm just saying there's so many things that have to happen to go number one. That is has nothing to do with anything you are in control with. All you can do is write the best song you can, you know?
1: Luck and a good song will set you on your way pretty well, I think. It's always a good one.
0: Yeah, you know, yes and no. I mean, there are songs I, 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 I've i written that I thought were going to be hits that nobody's heard yet, you know what I mean? And then there are songs I thought, okay, the, yeah, 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 okay. And those songs were recorded by somebody, you know, important and sold a lot of records.
1: Do you know when you're writing something, this has the potential to be a hit? Do you have that, I think I've found something here? You think you do. Okay.
0: Nobody, nobody knows if we, if somebody actually knew then they would write hit after hit after hit, right? Except for Lennon and McCartney. I can't think of, you know, I mean, you know. Uh, I mean Elton and Bernie unbelievable right you know Paul Simon unbelievable Billy Joe unbelievable but even they would tell you there's no way you'd consider the piano and know your song is going to be you know the standard for a million years you, yeah you just you, you have a feeling inside when you hit one and you think whoa this this feels good you know and you're lying to yourself if you don't do feel that you should feel that you should feel confident about one when you think but um but it's, look, it's not scientific, you know, it's not a formulaic thing. You, you got to hit a nerve with the public at the mm-hmm. right time. And like I said, a lot of things have to happen. Um, but I think a professional writer who writes all their life and writes six hours a day or eight hours a day, whatever it is, you get into a groove and the bar is high and you kind of set a standard for yourself. And, and you know, even in the standard, you know, there's going to be a song or two that's going to pop up and you're going to go, ooh, this could be one
1: one of my all time favorite songs of yours, which I I hope isn't a surprise, but maybe it is. Is I Will Prevail from Wonderland, which I'm just <laughs> obsessed. Maybe I think it's the Kate Schindel effect. I think wherever, anything she touches is magic. But I'm just obsessed with the crescendo at the end. I think it's insane.
0: Well, first of all, Kate is like eight feet tall, <laughs> you know, and she's now the president of Equity Actors Equity. Yes, you know, she's a, she's a guy besides her talent and her beauty. She's a brilliant woman and, you know, and she's very, very conscientious and and responsible about social stuff. And and she's a wonderful girl. I mean, in Wonderland, she was eight feet tall, you know, and her presence on stage was enormous. But talk about the song. That was my homage to Jim Stein. That's what that was. Really? Uh, Okay. Jim Steinman was a friend of mine and unfortunately passed away this last year. Uh, All Jim Steinman ever wanted to do was play second base for the Yankees, by the way. Which that doesn't come out, but that is true. His, as my passion is American football, he was his was the New York Yankees, and my show Excalibur, which opens I don't know next couple of days, which opens in Seoul for the second time. We have big hit there. Uh, I started that show with him, but but oh, he's goodness. not. He wasn't well. He he wasn't. He just hasn't been well for years and didn't take really good care of himself. And you know, didn't treat himself so well. But uh, I actually started that show with him. He wrote one, one lyric in like two years. It was called Bitches Brew. It was Morgana putting the shit together to kill Arthur. And it was fantastic and stuff. But I said, Jim, if you write one lyric every two years, we're going to be dead. And we won't even finish the first act, you know. And of course, in, Jim, in typical Steinman fashion, he was like, well, first of all, let's get them all on motorcycles. We should have a motorcycle wars on stage, you know. I loved him. It. it was a great, great guy and, and great collaborator. But, but that song, I Will Prevail, is absolutely a, my, my homage to Jim and trying to do a bad out of hell kind of a thing. And then you needed somebody like Kate, who had the chops mm. to well and hit the last notes, and every night, eight times a week, and she did, and she was amazing. So that's that.
1: I'm obsessed with her. I'm obsessed with that song. And Jim styman I mean, I don't know if you had the opportunity yeah. to see Bat Out of Hell, but it was just like, oh no, my gosh! It. I mean, I there was a big, massive production in the opera house here, which was just like epic in scale. It was like, Holy of course shit. it was,
0: because like, he's this- a Wagner, he's a Wagner guy. He loves Wagner. <sighs> But by the way, have, you know, Natalie McQueen in London, who's a genius, brilliant, wacky, wonderful giant star talent to me. I love her. She was the, you know, the Mad Hatter when, yeah. when we did the tour. And I loved her. I love The humor she brought to the part and uh, boy, her and Carrie Ellis singing. Uh, this is who I am this together. I am, yeah. oh, that was fantastic. Yeah. You know, they're, they're close to me and, and they're both brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artists.
1: Yeah, that duet is amazing. And also it's just like, you sort of can't get anything richer than just like basically two belters on stage, basically like,
0: oh, okay, if you're I'm going not, there, I'm going there. I'll, oh, here we go. <laughs> um, how much fun is that for the audience every day? You know, and, and Carrie has just got a gorgeous instrument and a beautiful, soulful delivery. And Natalie is Natalie. You know, she's got this bigger than life, you know, wacky persona. And she brings all that to her music, especially for a character like the Mad Hatter was perfect and stuff. So I was again, very lucky to have them.
1: Now, if anybody's wanting to hear these stories, obviously of course elaborated in much more detail in person, there is an opportunity for them to do that because you are coming to the UK and you are coming to do your solo show, which I do believe is called Frank and Friends, very apt.
0: Yeah, listen, again, Four Walls and Dan Looney, who's a wonderful young producer who's going to take over the world one day. He's producing the Bonnie and Clyde concerts and I'm just kind of hanging in there with them. You know, I'm coming to London because they're doing these concerts for Bonnie and Clyde and I could not be more excited about that. I believe it's going to be the beginning of the Bonnie and Clyde story for the West end. I'm going to do my first Frank and friends in London. I I did one in in Manchester uh, a few years ago before the wonderland tour, which was fantastic and a lot of fun with American and English artists. Uh, And so the big thing now is I got to cast this. And uh, so soon you will hear about who's doing this. Who are my friends in the Franken friends? We'll see. It's still early days to put that together. But it's going to be, you know, my usual show, which is joyful, an enormous amount of energy. You probably won't think you're in a theater show. Uh, That's just not my shows. You know, it's 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 funky and poppy and rocky and jazz. Yeah, of course they'll have the big theater you know, songs in it because they'll kill me if I don't do that. But but the attitude of the show is kind of more like a pop rock concert. And I, I hope everybody comes out and I'm very excited I'm very nervous. Shit, it's my first time doing this in London. So I better not fuck up. Am
1: I right in saying that I believe um, obviously Cadogan Hall will be in a concert venue. So it's ever so slightly different, but with Bonnie and Clyde, is this, is this your West End debut with this piece?
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, these concerts with Drury Lane, uh, you know, it's an iconic place. I've never been in there, so I can't even wait just to go be part of what this is going to be. And like I said, Dan is doing a, a wonderful job of putting all of this together, him and his team. And I am very optimistic that this is the start of whatever the West End scenario will be for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Well, two sold out shows, at, as you say, you know, theatre or Drury lane, which is, I think, arguably the, the top, you know, one or two, arguably the top most iconic venue that the West End has to offer on the world stage. I mean, the fact that it has this response and this relationship, you know, 10 plus years after New York, the fact that it hasn't, you know, been performed professionally in the UK must for you must be quite actually quite humbling.
0: You know, here's the deal. There's a story behind everything. So on Broadway, Bonnie and Clyde had five general partner producers. Two of them came up with the money to do the show. Three came up with zero, zero. So we were running on a very shoestring budget from the very, very beginning. And when you need the money to get through the winter, to pass the reviews, to realize that Laura and Jeremy are stars and people wanna come see them, we had none. And we had things working against us. That's a whole other conversation and that's not this today's conversation and yet even though we were not successful on broadway mti who licenses the show well the show is everywhere the show is a hit in japan and korea and australia and germany and wherever it's been it's been a hit and it licenses in america to colleges and young people like like if it was a big hit right i know that because that's i know the royalties from that and it's doing fantastic and i think dan's attitude was i'm going to find the right audience the, the audience here I'm going to make a hit of it and then we'll open the door and explore it all over the world with this version and mm. maybe bring it back to New York. I know he's talked about that and, you know, I'm with him, you know, I'm on the bus. So Absolutely. whatever he needs for me, he's got. Absolutely. And of course, you know, Ivan Menchel wrote a great book to this show uh, who wrote the cemetery club and is the book writer to my death note and Madahari and a wonderful writer and Excalibur. And then the legendary Don Black, OBE, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, One of the things about Don is Don never ages. Like, you know, as he ages, he's still writing for young characters and putting the truth in their mouths. Mm. And Bonnie and Clyde is such a great example of Don at his best. They're telling the truth. They stand up there and they tell you the truth. And that's why this kind of cult following and young people love it so much and love the songs and sing those songs, you know, at auditions and all this kind of stuff, because Don... Don told the truth and that's what that's
1: about. Laura and Jeremy were on 11, literally just a couple of days after the announcement of Bonnie and Clyde. And we had a very interesting conversation around singing some of the signature, the songs you know, raise a little hell, but also die in so bad. And Laura said that she'd sung it apart from the reunion, which I believe you did at 54 and below. we haven't Hasn't actually sung that song, you know, professionally in public because she thinks it sits within the context of the show because it's not a happy, joyful, beautiful song like it can come across on the album. It's about heartbreak and death and ownership and all these things. And I can imagine for you as an artist, while of course it's great that it's had all this success, it also, it's juicy, meaty musical theatre, sort of hard music. And I imagine that's quite exciting.
0: It's done at his best. You know, it is about death, but it's not a sad song. It's about saying, at the end of the day, if I have to go and I go with you, I can do that. And and there's still this kind of it's it's about love. It's, it's in its own way, it's a love song. And of course, Laura's recording of it, which is iconic, and her performance on Broadway, you know, doing that song was just beautiful. Everybody was crying, as they should. I, I wrote it, the melody, but I think it's really a combination of Don's words, meeting Laura's phrasing and the way she put that song across and created this beautiful moment.
1: Because on the demo itself, there's a step up at the end, which doesn't appear on the album. Why, why did that change?
0: Well, first of all, if you know my history, everything changes constantly. You know, someone like you and Jekyll and Hyde used to be someone like you found someone like me. That's what it used to be. And then Leslie and I played around with it. And by the time we got into the show, it was if someone like you found someone like me, which, which just a couple of word changes changed the entire song and the whole feeling of the song. And you'll have to ask Don, but my memory is Don actually wrote a few versions of Diane Ain't So Bad before we came to the one that we, we got to at that moment in the show, which he just placed perfectly. Uh, That song had a life before it landed on that lyric and in that moment in the show, Jeff Calhoun directed the show beautifully and, Mm -hmm. and, and he created that moment on stage for Laura to have that. And he also framed the song beautifully.
1: So Frank and Friends, it will be you talking through your music, some of your stage work, obviously the stories as well. And then if we pay extra, will you sing the Houston version? Are you going to do the one you just mentioned? with? No, no. Well, first
0: of all, I got to get somebody to sing the shit out of that song. I want you to sing it. Which I think I will. No, that's not going to happen. But I probably will sing eight bars of something because... It's usually I do. And it's the comedy portion of the routine. You don't want to hear me sing more than eight bars. Trust me. What I use the shows for is I'm still a musician first. My most fun I have is being the keyboard player in a band and playing behind great singers. And I, you know, that's where I love to be. That's where I'm most comfortable. You know, putting on shows is hard writing score after score after score. That's hard. That's hard. I mean, it's not work, but it's hard, but playing my songs in a, in a concert, that's a vacation. That's, pure joy I know we're going to have amazing singers up there with me and yeah I'll tell a lot of stories and I have some funny stories but I'm not going to tell I'm not going to give them all away to you today so you'll have to come to the show William and you'll you know We'll do a we'll do an interview after the show, and then it'll be a whole different story. So,
1: well, I'm very very grateful for the stories that you have told today. Because as much as I try and be as professional as I can, I'm such a huge fan of your work. So it really is a genuine honor and pleasure.
0: Well, I appreciate. Get- I don't take that for granted. I appreciate that very very much, and 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 I don't take anything for granted. You know, I, and I look. I, I don't even know where it comes from. You know, people ask me all the time. where's it come from? I don't know. It comes from somewhere up there, and I'm I live in fear that one day somebody's going to turn off the faucet. And no, uh oh, that's it. I don't know what i'm doing anymore <laughs> and so i i am I'm, I, I have a lot of gratitude and it's humbling to me and, and i thank you for the compliment i mean it's it doesn't go unnoticed it means something please know that
1: my very final question for you if we think way back to the beginning to the guy that just wanted to make music that dared to tip his toe into the world of musical theater that dared to break a lot of the rules and has very much become you know one of the greatest parts of you what do you think that younger version of yourself would think of the success that you've had and some of the amazing people that you've personally got to work with? What would they think?
0: I mean, he'd say, really? (laughs) (laughs) You were a lifeguard sitting on the beach in Hollywood, Florida, 1976, 77, 78, you know, with a zinc oxide on your nose, watching the girls go by, playing at Iggy's strip club at night, jazz, and now you're here? What? How did that happen? I don't know. I think he'd be Amazed, And I hope he'd be proud of me too, you know? And then I hope he would say, listen to your own words and keep being a student and keep growing. And that's why a few months ago in Vienna, when I worked one of the great orchestras of the world doing my first full-length classical symphony, was life changing for me. You know, my mom is still crying and laughing at the same time. She's crying because she's so proud of me and and she can't believe this has happened. And she's laughing because I don't even read bass clefs. So she's like, how did they even let you in the building?
1: <laughs> Keeping it soon, I'm gonna take that with me today. I think that's really important. So thank you for that. The best of luck with all of the openings across the globe. Thank you, take care. You've been listening to Eleven, the official theatre podcast. Find out more about Eleven at elevenpodcast.com or via the Broadway Podcast Network.